Okay, I'm so excited about this new series that we're starting today. It is one that's that's uh, got me really stoked. I talked to Phil Keggy and asked him, I said, what do you think about us getting a song together for this new series? And he said, uh, hey, I'm always up for it if, if it's one I can do. And I said, well, it's like the magnus opus of Paul McCartney. It is the best Paul McCartney song that maybe there ever was. And he says... Don't tell me it's the long and winding road. I said, it's the long and winding road. He said, nobody can do that but Sir Paul. And I said, well, Sir Phil, maybe someone else can. So with that, uh, I'm going to give you a short little intro this morning of Phil Keggy's gift to us, the long and winding road, the Old Testament. The long and winding road.
<laughs> he did good. He did good. Uh, uh, I wait for the day when uh, um, I, I know uh, uh, there's a, a fellow named Eastman uh, is his last name. Uh, he's uh, Paul McCartney's lawyer. And I keep waiting for one day I'm going to get some call or some email, but uh, uh, he's a nice fellow, hopefully would uh, appreciate that we're just trying to find a way to take what he's done so masterfully well and apply it in a way that, that touches uh, our class and what we've got to say today. So here it is. This is the key to the song and the key to the series. There was a, a sermon that was written in the early church. Our earliest understanding of it comes from a quotation that a fellow named Clement put into a writing. Clement quotes this sermon around 95 in this era, 95 A.D. or C.E. And in the year 95, Clement writes and he quotes out of the sermon. The sermon itself had been written down already. The sermon is something that we call the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. So the Bible, as we call it, Bible is the word for book, but the Bible is a collection of a lot of different books. And one of the books found in the section of the Bible that we Christians call the New Testament is this book that we call Hebrews, which is really not so much a book as it is a written sermon. So I've put an old manuscript of it up here so that you can look at it. And those of you who like to try and play through the Greek will see the part that I've underlined here. And that says in Greek, pros hebreos. And that means to the Hebrews. And this is a sermon to Jews or people extremely familiar with Judaism who at the time also believed that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited one for Israel and for the world. So the book of Hebrews begins with this passage over and over in different ways long ago God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. Now, if you're following along, trying to figure out which translation I'm using, because some of you are translation hounds and will be emailing me, I'm using mine. So if you don't like it, sorry. But it's mine, and I'm sticking with it. Over and over, in different ways, long ago, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. But in these latter days, he's spoken to us through his sons. Now, if you look at this, you can kind of see something here. The core thought is there's one God and there's one message, but he's used different methods to communicate that message to us. So I like to understand this verse within the context of a timeline. And the timeline, using the language of the writer, is long ago to these latter days. So long ago, 
to latter days is the timeline. So let's take the verse and apply it to the timeline a little bit. Long ago, not once, but over and over. Not in one manner, but in many different ways. Through the prophets, God spoke to the fathers. Now, these, this is a, a sermon or a letter, if you will, a written sermon to Hebrews. And so the fathers are the Hebrew fathers. He's, the, 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 the writer is saying over and over in different ways through the prophets God spoke in the past. Now, in these latter days, God spoke in the same message, but we've gotten it through his son. And that's how God spoke. So we're going to look at the long ago time and look at the different methods and the different ways God spoke that one message. Because it is a long and winding road through the Old Testament that leads us to the Messiah. And I want us to understand and see the Messiah through the Old Testament. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start today. And what I'm going to do on our PowerPoint is kind of pull a, a semi-transparent screen over the latter days. Because I want you to be able to see. It's, it's a little oblique. It's not as clear as it is for those of us in history looking back. But the fathers, the Hebrew fathers who had Torah, who had the Nevi'im, who had the Ketuvim, these Hebrew fathers who had what we would call in Christian circles the Old Testament, what the Jews would call their Tanakh, these Hebrew fathers had a pretty good picture of what Messiah was going to be. And that's what I'd like us to do. And so we're starting this morning, and the first thing we've got to do is get the setting. And the setting starts in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to use a good bit of scripture as we go through this, because I want people to see and understand it. In the beginning, so we're going to the very start, Barashit in Hebrew. In the beginning, God is already there. God's already at the beginning, and he created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was without form and void. A few of you are Hebrew readers, and so we've got some Hebrew readers with us. Let's get this up here in Hebrew for you. So we are verse 2. See if it reads that. Yeah. Vaharetz and the land Hatah. It was Tohu. Whoops. Tohu. Tohu. Vabohu. Void and without form. That is a key to understanding the entire Genesis setting. This is the key verse. The earth was void, without form, and void. I'm going to write it down because I really want you to find it. Without form and we'll use a different color, void. 
And that's the way it was. And then God steps into the picture again. And over a period of six times, the Hebrew word uses, uh, the Hebrew scripture uses the word day, yom. Could mean 24 hours, could mean a time period, an, an epoch. It could mean, you know, you, you read scripture about the day of King David. That lasted more than 24 hours. You know, it, it, it's, it's a time period, okay? So we've got a day or a time period, and there are six of them where God is creating. But the creation is beautiful in what he does. Because on those six days he creates, he deals with the fact that the heavens and earth he's already made are without form and are void. So you know what he needs to do? He needs to form that which is without form. And he needs to fill the void. And that's what we have. And it's, it's really beautiful the way it's shown in Scripture. So, for example, on the first day or the first time period, look what he does. God says, and that's important, God's speaking this into existence. God says, let there be light. And he, there was light. And the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness and called the light day, and he called the darkness night, evening and morning, first day. So he forms light, and this is day one, day one. He forms light and darkness. You with me? Y'all following this? All right, day two, he's going to form something else. And if we look at day two, he says, and God said, again, he's doing this by the power of his word, God's word, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and he separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above. He called the, uh, and it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and morning the second day. And so on the second day, he forms waters and air. Third day, God says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And he calls the dry land earth and the waters he called seeds. And he says, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants and all of these things that are going to produce the plants after themselves. And so we have day three. And in day three, we have God setting out the waters, uh, now the seas, whoops, keep my colors consistent, the seas and what we would call the land. And there it is. Now, we've got three days of God forming. The next three days, God will fill what he's already formed. So he's going to achieve both ends. He's going to form, and then he's going to fill. And so we look at the fourth day. 
God says, let there be lights to separate the day from the night. Signs and seasons, days and years. And so he makes two great lights. The greater one to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And it was good. So he had formed light and darkness, and now he fills it with the sun and the moon and stars. So now we have light and dark formed. Oops. I think there are still two S's. I was using the Lubbock spelling. <laughs> Light and darkness. So I'm in trial <laughs> and uh, in Dallas right now. And we, we have a, a, a really funny judge. He's just absolutely one of the funniest people you'll ever meet. But he's also a federal judge, which means he's been appointed under by the president of the United States, who's President Bush, under Article 3. He has a lifetime appointment. And and. That, that's that's pretty big deal. And so um, uh, he calls me up to sidebar with the other side at one point, And I'm thinking, I hope I'm not in trouble because you don't want to get in trouble with a federal judge. That's how you spend time in jail. And so not as in visiting a client either. I mean, like on the other side, ask the client. And so I'm up there and he says, uh, Mark, he says, there's a problem. I'm thinking, uh-oh, what have I done? And I said, yes, sir. And he says, uh, you have forgotten one of the fundamental rules. And I'm thinking, man, what? I thought it was going smooth. I said, yes, sir. He said, I before E except after C. <laughs> <laughs> and I had misspelled on the Elmo notes that I was writing. I said, he, and I said, I'm sorry, sir, I'll, I'll fix that immediately. He said, my mother's rolling over in her grave. And I said, <laughs> his mother had been a teacher. So uh, anyway, a little bit sensitive to it right now. Let me add that second S to darkness. I'll be back in court tomorrow. Um, and so we now have, this is day four, the day where he does the filling of the form. Day five, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. So he fills the waters and he fills the sky. So we have sea creatures. Whoops. We have sea creatures. In Lubbock, we call those fish. But it includes everything, you know, anything in the water, it's fish. An amoeba, that's just a little fish. Uh, sea creatures, fish. And how's he fill the air? Birds. Yes. So now we have this day five. A day where he fills what he had already formed. And then day six, he gathers the seas to themselves. He's already filled those, so that hardly counts. He's gathered those to himself. The main thing he's done is he's established the land by gathering it. So on day six, he says, let the land that he established, the earth, Ha'eretz, bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. And it was so. And he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God 
and, and he let them have dominion over the fish and the birds of the air. So he creates man. And that's how he fills the land on day six. He creates all of the beasts and animals and creepy crawlies. No roaches yet. That's a result of the fall. And, and man. But man is different than the animals. Man is different because man is in God's image. Oops. And so that makes man distinct. Now, this is an interesting thing that we're already seeing. It's interesting because if you go back into the Hebrew, and this is, look, if you're in here, you're not in here to get a sermon. This is a class, okay? This is life group, but this is a class. So we're going to get a little educational here for a minute, okay? God, in the Hebrew, Bareshit in the beginning, bara he created Elohim, God, God created. That word God is very important for you to know. In the Hebrew, it is what we would in English letters write as Elohim. Now, El means God. The I am ending in Hebrew is a plural ending. Plural. Okay? I mean, this is, if you have one cherub, you have a cherub. If you have a bunch of cherubs, you have cherubim. If you have one seraph, you have a seraph. If you have a bunch of seraphs, you have seraphim. I am is the plural ending, masculine plural ending in Hebrew. So technically, if you were reading and you just came across that word Elohim, it means God's plural but if israel's prophets said anything at all they said there is one god shema yisrael adonai eloheinu adonai echad is one there is one god hero israel the lord your god the lord is one god and that's reflected in the text as well because the verb bara, which is translated created, is a single verb. It is third person masculine singular. He single created. God's he single created. Now, some scholars say, well, the prophet who wrote this is, was no prophet. He was just a, a, a man who was grabbing hold of, that's, that's a vestige from Israel's past. When Israel believed there were multiple gods. No. No, 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 no. This is, this is no accident left over from the, when Israel may have been polytheistic or believed in multiple gods. This is no accidental slip of the pen. It's used repeatedly in the Old Testament in a singular sense. To refer to a singular God in a multiple form. And so you've got this really interesting thing that's happening here. In this setting. Where God says, let us make man in our image. Some scholars say, well, maybe God was 
the, the prophets there talking about God um, speaking to the angelic presence, his court, if you will. Well, no, I don't buy that because that's not who's making man. God is the one who's doing the creation. God created man. It wasn't a team effort. Okay, I'm going to assign the angels to uh, the hair. And that's why some people didn't get it right. No. God did this. But somehow within this God, and come on, guys, anybody who could create the cosmos, anything that could create the cosmos is going to be beyond our ability to grasp and understand and put into a definable form that we know. God gave us form and filling. We don't do that for him. Nowhere in this book does it say humanity has figured out the form in which God exists. So we're getting a glimpse, but somehow God didn't make man because he was lonely and he needed someone to talk to. You and I do not exist because God needs us. Bless his heart. He's lonely up there. No, he's doing fine without us. There is an eternal communication and dialogue within God. This being that we call God, I mean, the whole idea of God is something beyond our ability to understand that is not human. What what are you going to call him? I don't know. Call him God. That's our word. And it's a word the pagans know because the, it's, it's imbued in us that there's something else. We're hardwired to understand there's something beyond us. So God created, and that word man is Adam, but it refers to people. And that's why it says created man. We should use the word human or people maybe. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blesses them. And sets them over the plants and everything else. And then there is a seventh day of rest. And that is the creation. Day seven is rest. From all of this. Not because he's tired, but because he's through. His work is finished. The pagan Canaanite gods would rest because they got tired. In fact, a number of the pagan Canaanite myths that ran uh, to the culture beyond Israel had the gods creating humans because the gods were just getting tired of doing all the creation. I mean, they were having to dig all of these things and pile up these mountains and, and dig out all these streams. And it was just, I mean, they were wiping them out. So they just made people and said, you all do it. Not God. This wasn't a chore. He just spoke. And it happened. So that's what we've got. That is, as I say here in the PowerPoint, if we go back to it, that's the setting. Now what we need to do is we've got to move kind of quick, but I want to talk about Genesis chapter 2 because Genesis chapter 2 
gives us a, a, a closer look. We've gotten the broad picture in Genesis chapter 1. But Genesis chapter 2 zooms in on God forming people. And that zoom in picture is one that we want to zoom in on because it's all part of the setting of where we're going to see Jesus in the Old Testament. So these are the generations. This is what happened. This is the offspring of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and there was no small plant of the field that had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain. There was no man to work the ground. There was a mist going up from the ground that was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, don't think 21st century science cosmos on this, please, for a moment. Think like the fathers who were having the prophets give this to them would have thought 4,000 years ago. We don't know when, where, what, how, how why. What we know here is is that this message is that God took a dry piece area of land. There's no water falling down. There's no plant. There's no seed. There's no life whatsoever to this dirt. And out of that dirt of no life, God forms a life. God forms Adam. But remember how this was going down? What's the theme behind God's creation? He forms and then he fills. And we see that with Adam. He forms Adam and then he fills him with the breath of life. God breathes into Adam, into man. He's man at this point, not Adam. Yeah, the Hebrew word for man is Adam, but it doesn't have the article, which means the Adam. It's, it's not his name yet. It's just the man. So here we've got God breathing life into the man. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and this is how the man became a living creature. And God plants a garden and he takes the man from a place of no life. He doesn't want you to be confused. Man is not just a result of other life. Man is this the humanity. People are the design and purpose of God's forming. And then they are filled, or Adam, the man is filled with the Spirit of God. So this is a very distinct thing that happens. So within the framework of that, if we go back, God forms him from the dusty ground. He fills him with life. And this man is made in God's image. And so what does the man do? The man, God places him in authority. And the man starts giving names to all of the creatures. Now, if you remember the first chapter of Genesis, God called the light, light. God called the day, day. God called the dark, night. God is calling. God speaks. 
and it comes to be. It's God's words. It's God's name. It's God's label. And that's what it was. Then God makes humans in his image. And he says, your turn. You're in my image. You can on your own create and name this animal. Doesn't create the animal. He creates the name. And the man gets to name the animals. And whatever name the man gives, God says, that's going to be the name. But as Adam does so, he can't find his soulmate amidst all of the animals. Because these animals were made by God, but they were just the end result. They were made to fill the land. Adam's going to need someone like God made in himself. He's going to need someone that God forms and God fills with his breath to be an appropriate mate. And so the man gives names to all of the animals and then Yahweh God takes, puts the man to sleep and the man goes to sleep and God takes the rib and out of the rib makes woman. And Adam awakens from a marvelous dream, I feel confident. And he says, man, you won't believe what happened. By the way, are any of you anesthesiologists? Sometimes I just have to interrupt and make you aware of this. Becky's older sister is an anesthesiologist. And I said to her one time, I said, man, this must really be a cool job. You get paid to put people to sleep. And she looked at me and didn't miss a beat. She said, no, I don't. I get paid to wake them up. (laughs) So Adam goes to sleep. And then he awakens to to the counterpart. Bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. He says, this is the other half of what I am. And it's a marvelous little vignette. Now, they're in this garden. Ah, Let me back up for just a moment. They're in this garden. And God says to them in the garden, he says, you eat anything you want except this one tree. There's a tree of knowledge of good and evil that you're not to eat. Now, why does God do this? I was talking to a buddy the other day. We were talking through this. And he says, it doesn't make sense to me. Because he knows the end of the story. He knows that they're going to eat the fruit. And he knows they're going to get in trouble over it. He says, what's the big deal? It's a piece of fruit. And I said, well, that's one way of seeing it. He said, here's another way of seeing it. Here's God. And God is over people. And people should never forget that. And people can either live Uh, uh, under God and under God's protection or people can say I am not going to do that I am going to rebel and I'm going to choose to live outside of God the problem is if you're living under God and under his protection this is where there is life this is where there is joy this is where there is peace This is where there is a a, a true protection. And when people rebel 
they choose to live in a world of death, in a world of misery, in a world of uh, discord. They choose to live in a world without protection. If that's the way it's going to be. And there are boundaries. I mean, God didn't set it up where it was going to be difficult for Adam and Eve to make it. They had all of the good food they could possibly want. They had no reason to do it. Except a rebellious decision. Then my friend was also telling me, he said, yeah, but why did God make them where they could choose? I said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, that's what it is to be human. Humans make choices. Otherwise, we're machines. That's like asking the question, well, if God can do anything, can he make a rock he can't lift? Well, that works maybe when you're in middle school and you're trying to struggle through logic. But the answer to that's no. And some things are just, you, you can't, if, if God's going to make a human that can't choose, then that's not a human. That's not someone made in his image. You, Adam, the man, got to choose the names of the animals. If Adam doesn't have an ability to choose, then God says, okay, I've now made you, uh, uh, you have no ability to choose. Read this list of names so that uh, we'll have some names for the animals. I've made these choices for you. And, and Adam has no choice but to answer? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, no, we're not puppets. We're not machines. We're made in God's image. We're made with an ability to make choices. The thing is, we're not God. So we're not made as God. We're made in His image. So this is the story. If you go back to the PowerPoint, in comes the enemy. And the serpent, the enemy, was more crafty than all of the animals. And he slinks into the picture. And he says to the woman, Did God really say to you, you can't eat of that tree? Or, or you'll die? The, the Hebrew is actually rather interesting. There's this little Hebrew word called pin, which is in here. But look at how he says it. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, trickster. The woman said, oh, no, we can eat of the trees. But God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, Eve was not perfect in her memory because she's got that wrong. God never said, neither shall you touch it. Righteousness does not mean having a perfect memory. This wasn't her sin of forgetting. But that, that wasn't a rebellious error. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die. Now, this Hebrew word pen is there on the lest you die. It actually in the Hebrew conveys this idea of she said, you know, like it might happen. 
there's a hesitancy. Like she's not sure that God really meant it. it it's possible. And the serpent said, nah, you're not going to die. That's... God just knows when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like him. That's all you need. You just don't know the difference between good and evil. You're having to accept his word for it. You eat of the tree, you're going to know. And then you're basically God. So the woman looks at the tree. She sees that it's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes that it's desired to make her wise. So she took of its fruit and she ate, gave some to her husband who's with her, and he ate. And look what happens. The eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. And they tried on their own in a feeble way to sew fig leaves together and make themselves loincloths. I have fig trees. I, I, that, that's just not going to work. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife, they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God's the original Socrates. Socrates is famous for educating by asking questions. It's called the Socratic method. It's where you ask questions to educate people. It's what they use in law school. So God uses the Socratic method. He calls out to the man and says, where are you? The God who made the cosmos was not playing hide and seek. He's teaching here. And Adam says, I, or the man says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God says, uh, we don't have mirrors here. Who told you that you were naked? Now, I like to think that there was kind of a little pause there. And the man doesn't really have an answer. It's kind of like... <laughs> then God asks the follow-up. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, okay, she did it. And you gave her to me. So this is kind of indirectly your fault. And God turns to the woman. The woman says, serpent, serpent did it. He talked me into it. And uh, let me change slides so you can see the picture for the next one. So within the framework of this, Yahweh God banishes them from the garden. Now, Yahweh is a different word with God. And I don't want to lose track of our time here. But you'll notice that what happens here in the scriptures is starting with chapter 2 of Genesis, we have, this is what happened when Yahweh God. God is still Elohim. As I discussed before, that plural form of the Hebrew word for God. But Yahweh is a Hebrew word that, that many Jews still will not pronounce. They'll abbreviate it. 
with the Hebrew Yod and Hey, and and or Yod Hey Vav Hey are the actual four letters. But but the Bible translators take that and translate it as Lord with capital letters. See, it's a capital O R D, smaller font than the L, but it's capitals, and that's to let us know that it's the Hebrew word for the name of God. When Moses is in front of the burning bush and he says. You know, if I go down there, they're going to want to know your name, God. God uses Yahweh. He says, that's my name. When the Ten Commandments say, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it's Yahweh. And, and, and that's why most Jews who practice won't say God's name. Because that's violating the Ten Commandments is the perception of taking his name in vain. Yahweh. So this is the personal God that the prophets now put into the story because this whole story of Adam is a story of personal relationship. This is the relational God. He creates Adam and in his image and Eve in his image. But more than that, he walks with them in the garden. He talks to them. He fellowships with them. And once they sin, they become self-aware in a way that has shame attached. And they're trying to cover up their, their, their selves. And God points that out. And then God pronounces his curses. Look what he says to the serpent. He says, because you've done this, you're cursed above all the livestock. You're going to go on your belly and eat dust all the days. And I'll put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, by the word, offspring there is, as I noted in another class, masculine singular. Not just her general offspring, but a masculine singular to come from woman will bruise your head, will crush the work, the head, the thought, the planning, the devices of the serpent, even though the serpent will exact a price. It won't be without pain. To the woman, he says, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbirth. You're going to, your desire is going to be for your husband. He's going to have a, a, a rulership over you. This is not happy times for you. To Adam, he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree that I said don't eat, the ground's going to be cursed. And you get to work now for a living. And it ain't going to be as easy as going out and picking fruit. You're going to be in the midst of thorns and thistles. It's going to be by the sweat of your brow. And then you'll return. And that's when the man calls his wife Eve, which means it comes from the Hebrew word for living because she's the mother of all living. And then God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins. Where'd the skins come from for their clothing? Had to kill an animal. Those are animal skins. And he sends them out of the garden. Now, what do we have here in this setting? What are we picking up already? We've got certain things in this message. Remember, God's giving this message in the Old Testament over and over in different ways. Sometimes directly proclaiming it prophetically. Sometimes through pictures and images and storylines. But in different ways, through the prophets that gave us the Old Testament scriptures, God is speaking to us here and he's got the same message that we've got in Jesus. Here's the beginning of the message. Sin 
is serious. Rebellion against God is serious. It removes you from God. It removes you from His presence. It removes you from His paradise. It removes you from those things that give you joy and meaning and value in Him. It's a real problem that really needs to be addressed. And Adam and Eve, who become the mother and father of everyone that's living, have been sent out of Eden and are living as sinful beings. Yes, they'd been made in the image of God. They were made for something more in this world than they were experiencing. But they were going to be living by the sweat of their brow and in pain and in difficulty and in travail, cursed by the ground instead of having authority over it. They are subject to it. Instead of telling the hurricane to go blow itself out overseas, it comes ashore. This is the world in which we live. We're born into sin. You don't teach a child how to sin. They come by it naturally. But we have another glimpse here. That God will clothe us to cover the effect of sin. And it's going to come through a sacrifice. Paul will use this language. He'll say we were clothed in righteousness when we're clothed with the sacrifice of Christ. So we already see a glimpse here in the act of God. He could have just sent them out with their fig leaves. He could have just sent them out and said, go kill an animal and make yourself a dress. He could have said to Adam, man, you're going to get sunburned. I'd get some skin on. Go kill an, go kill a, an animal. But God's mercy is shown as well as God's desire to cover the effects of sin through a sacrificial death. And this is an early message of the Messiah and what God will do. And we have the final thing here that I want to draw out this morning. God will defeat Satan's work but it will be at a cost to God. All of that's in the setting. It's all the beginning of the long and winding road that leads us to where we are. Here are your points for home. First, Paul the rabbi writes in Romans 1, 28 and 32, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Paul's talking about the pagans, the, the goyim. By the way, one uh, non-Jew is a goy. Multiple, plural, goyim. Same thing, I am ending, just for grins. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. That is the resolution of rebellion to God. God is life. You want to pull yourself away from Him? You want to live in rebellion to Him? You're living in the land of the dead. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Misery loves company. Dead people love to hang around with dead people. It's, it's why there's like lots of them in cemeteries. No. Okay. Here's the point. Sin is a real problem. And it needs a real solution. The solution is not simply God's, eh, I'm going to let it slide. God is a just God. He's a consistent God. 
He's a real God with real morality. He can't just be an amoeba God who says, well, okay, I'll just flow over here and take a different shape and form so that sinners can be with me. And open rebellion with God is a good thing. We'll just, we'll just say from here on out, people are allowed to pretend they're God. No. This is a real problem. God made us in His image and He made us for a relationship with Him. And sin has destroyed that relationship absent something happening to fix it. It's got to have a problem. I mean, it's got to have a solution. It's a real problem. And this is what the prophet said. And they told this to the fathers. And we're going to see it over and over and over. It's got to have a solution. I love what Paul wrote here, and I've had to wedge it in. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Paul says God knew this was going down before it happened. He made the world anyway knowing what would happen. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. He knew he would have to send a Messiah. He knew he would have to do something to take care of the problem. In him, we have been bought back. We've been redeemed. The curse of Eden has been fixed in Jesus through his blood. That's where the forgiveness comes from. That's the sacrifice. He's made known to us the mystery. Mysterion in the Greek means something that, that's, that, that exists and, and you know, and some know it, but, but everyone doesn't. And he's saying God's revealed it according to his purpose, which he set forth in the Messiah as a plan for the fullness of time. This was all God planned the Messiah. You see Christ up there. Don't think Greek. That was not his last name. That means Messiah. This is the father of our Lord Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, Hamashiach, the anointed one, who's blessed us in the Messiah. He chose us to be sons through Jesus, the Messiah. He's forgiven our sins through the Messiah. And the Messiah was his plan. And so that's our long and winding road. That's the something God not only planned from the beginning, but has now been revealed to us in the last days. We've seen the Messiah very clearly. And so next week we will continue this. And we'll be starting with Noah and the flood. And we're going to work through some more stories, including uh, getting to Father Abraham. God, thank you so much for this morning and a chance to look at this long and winding road. What an incredible God you are. Would you touch us with your greatness, your vision, your plan, the magnificent epic scope of your love, redemption of our, of, of our existence to be with you eternally. In Jesus, amen. See you guys next Sunday.